welcome NBC to Fall Launch Sunday, starting our new series this morning, Seven Through the Seven Churches of Revelation. It's going to be an awesome seven weeks together. And uh, I think you're going to realize that studying the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible here, is incredibly relevant to those of us who are Christians living in uh, difficult times, I believe maybe even in the end times. This series could not be more relevant for the times that we are in. As you know, our, our world is in a state of cultural upheaval and uh, global chaos. These are turbulent days, increasingly hostile towards Christianity. We see violent oppression against the Christians living in the East, and we are beginning to, to see judicial suppression of Christians living here in the West. And so Revelation is actually a book designed uh, by Christ to offer strength and perseverance for you and for me in times like these. Uh, now, before we even begin this series, let me just acknowledge a word of, of thanks. I have done my own study through the book of Revelation and, and taught through before, but I would be remiss if we didn't mention that our daughter church, uh, Liquid Church, has helped us in preparation by providing some of these graphics and even their, their sermon notes, and that has been a great blessing to, to us as we prepare and hopefully to you as well. And uh, I just want to dive in as we begin with just a little background. Uh, Revelation was written by John, uh, the Apostle John, one of the Lord's three closest disciples. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He, he wrote five books in our Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then, of course, the book of Revelation. He wrote the book of Revelation while he was on this tiny island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. Kind of looks like the island where they found Luke Skywalker, doesn't it? John uh, was the youngest disciple, probably was just in his late teens when he was following the Lord for those three and a half years or so. So if those of you who are teenagers, uh, you think you're too young for God to use you, um, not so fast, right? The scripture says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but instead set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, 1 Timothy 4.2. Uh, but on the other hand, you might also recognize that at this point, many scholars uh, say, and I agree, that John is actually writing Revelation when he's about 90 years old. And so we are here in the year A.D. 90. And so uh, who knows? Your most significant encounter with God might be still yet to come in the future. So let me encourage you to finish well. Now, at this point, John was sentenced to uh, spend the rest of his life in prison, kind of breaking rocks on this island. Now, what was his crime? Well, it tells us in chapter 1, it says, I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is being persecuted for preaching the word of God and telling people about Jesus Christ. See, the emperor of Rome at that time was, was Domitian, and he had a particular uh, qualm with the Christians of his day. Uh, see, they would not bow down and say, Kaiser Curios, they would not pinch the incense into the fire and offer their sacrifice to Caesar because they believed in their heart of hearts that Jesus was Lord. And so uh, because uh, the, the emperor had such a problem with these Christian groups, one strategy that he employed was to take one of their leaders and separate them from the rest of the group and see if the group would die out. That's the strategy he has employed here with the apostle John by imprisoning him here on this island. At this point, I just want you to imagine the kind of the, the setting. John is the last living apostle uh, everybody else is dead. All the other 12 disciples are, are gone to be with the Lord. And here he is on this island, and then one Sunday, John receives this stunning revelation or unveiling 
of Jesus Christ, resurrected, exalted, and glorified. And it is overwhelming. Take a look at verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Two, let's say it together, Ephesus, Smyrna, let me hear you, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Good. So John hears this voice in back of him saying, write this stuff down, John. Seven letters, seven churches in these seven cities in Asia Minor. You can still visit those cities today. As you see on this map, there's, there's the seven churches, and we're going to look at each of them in this series, one each Week. They're located in modern-day Turkey on the coast of the Aegean Sea, about 200 miles south of Istanbul. Notice the seven cities here form a horseshoe shape going clockwise, starting at Ephesus, ending in Laodicea. Do you see that? That's because this was the ancient mail route in Asia Minor. This was the Roman postal route. And so you'll notice on the stage over here, we have a, a mailbox, just to remind you that what we're reading here are letters. And so uh, we're going to open up the mailbox, and each week we're going to look at one of each of these letters that go to these different churches, and we're going we're gonna to read them. Now, now, you might think, oh, wonderful, a letter from Jesus. Isn't that just lovey-dovey? Roses are red, violets are blue. Not exactly. In fact, uh, let me just open up this one letter and just read a little bit from, from this particular letter. It says this, uh, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. And so when we open up these letters, these are words of, of heat, of, of intensity. John gets this, gets this revelation of Jesus in all of his majesty, glorified and lifted up and powerful as we will see him next. You see, when Jesus returns again, he won't come as a lamb. He will come as a lion. He won't come riding on a donkey, humble and meek. He will come victorious, riding on a war horse, conquering and to conquer. Amen. Suffice it to say, this is not the Jesus that you and I typically imagine in our mind's eye. We think about Jesus in, in the Christmas story, the baby in a manger, or maybe we, we think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, or we think of the wounded Christ on the cross. And he is all of that, but here we see this unveiling of Jesus Christ as we will see him next, majestic, glorified, all-powerful, with, with the, the power of a thousand nuclear reactors pouring off of him, and his words are hot. He, he commends his church while he also condemns other churches. He, he might reward one church, and he, he'll rebuke another church. See, here we see the real Jesus, and, and he does not hesitate with words of rebuke for us when we displease him. Here he points out the things we're doing well, but he also convicts us where we're falling short. And this image of Jesus giving each of his churches a personal thumbs up or down is really super intense. How do you get the most out of this series? Let me just suggest three ways that you can get the most out of this series. First, let me encourage you to read God's word for yourself. Specifically, read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. That's important to clarify. We're not going to go through the whole 22 chapters in this series. We're just looking at the first three chapters. So read that. Uh, secondly, uh, pick up one of these study guides that we've made available for you in the Welcome Center. They will give you background information on each of the churches and context for you to understand more about what he's saying. And also there's a place in here where you can bring it to the sermon on Sunday morning and take notes in here. And so this is a good resource for you to have. Uh, they're $5 in the back. Just pick one up and... Um, Make sure you take advantage of that. And then thirdly, I would encourage you to, to discuss this series with your small group. If you haven't signed up for a small group, there's still sign-ups available 
in the back. In fact, none of our groups have actually started yet. One starts right after this service. But you can sign up for that group or other groups and really begin to wrestle and discuss and share with each other what we're learning. My, my hope and my prayer, and I know Pastor Bob feels the same way, is that Jesus would speak very personally and very directly to each of us throughout this series, breathing some fresh fire into our faith if we've grown cold or complacent. Anyone reading these letters from Jesus is going to feel this heat, and I'm praying that this will just set our church on fire. Each week, we're going to open up one letter, and we're going to ask, what is Jesus saying to this church? And then we're going to ask a more powerful question, a more scary question. What is he saying to our church? Can you just imagine if we, Millington Baptist Church, received a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ himself about our church? Would his words bring us reward? Hey, you guys are awesome. Or, or would they bring a mixture of rebuke also? Come on, you guys are you're compromising here. So people ask us, you know, Pastor Dave, Pastor Bob, is God still speaking today? And we believe the answer is yes. Open up his word. The, the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? You see, you'll see this refrain in Revelation again and again and again. He, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's only appropriate that before we even begin the first letter, we pause for a word of prayer and ask God to open up our ears today. Would you pray with me? God, as we pause for a moment, bowing our heads, closing our eyes, we invite and invoke you to do what only you could do. Uh, we pray that you take away anything that would prevent us from hearing what the Spirit would want to say to us today and in our era and in this season of our church. And we pray, God, as we go, you would help us to remove any stumbling block that would prevent us from following you and obeying you. And God, for, for our preacher, we especially pray for him. May your words be his words this morning, for he needs your help more than everyone else. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's dive in. Letter number one. If you have your guide, you can actually open it up. I'm on page four of your study guide. You'll notice that there's an orange box there uh, on the study guide that gives kind of a snapshot of Ephesus, a little background about the city. You can read that later. But let me just say, Ephesus was a thriving, thriving metropolis. A quarter of a million people lived in Ephesus at this time. If you visit Turkey today, you can visit the beautiful ruins of Ephesus. And you'll notice that the great temple of Artemis and the ruins there, also known as the Temple of Diana. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it was four times the size of the Acropolis in Athens. There was 120 different gilded, inlaid marble columns given from all the different kings nearby uh, that were 60 feet tall. It was a commercial hub there in Asia Minor uh, in the first century. It was on the coast, and so they had a seaport. It was really considered the gateway to Asia. Ephesus was also a cosmopolitan city, like Los Angeles or, or Hong Kong. People there were well-educated. Uh, it had one of the largest libraries in the ancient world, and it had this 26,000-seat amphitheater. Now, just to give you a size and scope, that's about the size of Madison Square Garden. So this was a pretty happening place to live. This wasn't some rural town with some redneck church. The Ephesian church was influential, and it played a key role in the beginnings of this Jesus movement. It became known as the Mother Church in Asia Minor, and I personally think that's why Jesus wrote to this church first. So without further ado, let's take a look. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, Revelation is called apocalyptic literature, which just simply means it uses a lot of symbols that stand for things, other things. And uh, books in the Bible sometimes do this, like in Ezekiel or Daniel. Sometimes people shy away from this book because it is confusing because of these symbols. But a lot of times, if you look in the book, the symbols actually defined within the book itself. Like, look earlier in chapter 1. It actually tells us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, now the Greek word angelos simply means messenger, and it can mean a heavenly messenger, but it can also mean an earthly messenger. And so many people believe, and I would agree, that this letter is really addressed to the leader or the pastor of this particular church. And John is saying, I want each pastor to read this church in your city to the church in your, con your congregation in that city. Uh, look again at this picture in Revelation chapter 2. It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, here's an, another symbol. A lampstand is a symbol for for a church, shining light into a dark culture. That's why we have these seven stars behind me on this stage, just to remind us about this series. We're supposed to let our light so shine before others that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. We are one of those lampstands. I want you to notice something about this verse, though. I want you to notice that Jesus is walking among the seven churches. He's taking notes. He's observing He's inspecting our fruit. He's seeing how each church is doing. Although each church has its own pastor, Jesus is like the CEO, the chief executive officer. He's the, the original founder. And so as the CEO, he alone has the right to do a job review on his church. Those of you who may know me, you know, I used to be in the hotel and restaurant business. My very first restaurant management job was, was working for this chain called CC's Pizza. It was really popular in the South. There was a few hundred of them at the time. And um, I'm managing this restaurant one day, just doing my thing. And that's when one of my cooks, Bernard, turned to me and goes, Mr. Dave, somebody important is here. I look out the window, there's this Mercedes-Benz that pulls up, and the license plate says TBPVA, which is the slogan for the chain, the best pizza value anywhere, TBPVA, mercedes this guy must be important. I don't know who this guy is, but we got to get our act together. He comes storming through the door, little Italian guy, and he starts walking around. He's looking at the buffet. He's looking in the kitchen. He's looking in the restroom. He's looking at the dining room. He's going back asking questions of people. And then he turns his attention to me, the manager. Hey, and he starts grilling me. What's the values of CC's Pizza? Blah, blah, blah. He's asking me all these questions, and I'm stumbling through the answers. And then five minutes later, this little ball of energy is out the door. I'm like, what just happened? I'm looking around like this was not the best time to have a little mystery shopper visit here at CC's. We've had a better looking dining room than this before. Things are kind of messy. I'm not too sure how I did on this particular job review. What we have in Revelation chapter 2 is like Jesus walking in the midst of his church, giving us a report, and then he comes back, looks us in the eye, and says four words, I see your deeds. He's been walking around. He says, I've been watching you guys carefully. I've been observing, evaluating. I see it all. You know, sometimes I think, wouldn't it be great if Jesus would visit our church? Jesus is present in our church. He's, he's sitting in our meetings. He's listening to our Sunday school class discussions. He's, he's saying, I see the way you serve. I stopped by the nursery this morning. I, you know, I, I went into the sanctuary. I saw the way you guys were singing. I, I saw what you offered in the offering plate. I, I heard your words in the parking lot. I, I heard your words of encouragement over there, and I heard your words of gossip over there. 
Jesus says, I know your deeds. I see everything. And he's about to give a job review to this church in Ephesus. And he's like, here's my evaluation of your work. Here's some positives and here's some negatives. Here's some things to commend you for. But here's some things you need to work on. And just like any good supervisor, he starts with the positive, right? He begins his performance review with some highlights. So here's what's going well. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Look at this list that Jesus gives. There's a lot to like with this church. Hard work, perseverance. The Ephesians wouldn't tolerate wickedness. They held fast to the truth. They endured hardship for his name. They have not grown weary. They rejected false teachers. They tested those who had false doctrine. And and they had this quality that's really important for successful churches. They had the quality of discernment. They had discernment. See, not everybody who holds up a Bible or can quote a Bible verse is actually a sound Bible teacher. There's actually some really, really you know, odd things being said over the airwaves nowadays in the name of Christian teaching. It's just not true at all. You have to be really discerning. i tell you a true story about a family that was falling apart. The, the husband had basically left his wife for, for another woman. And what was more concerning is that the spiritual leader in his particular life, this particular pastor, uh, did not question what he was doing. When he went to go see the pastor, this particular church, they had no longer looked at the Bible as authoritative or inspired, and so this particular pastor um, just kind of was like a live and let live kind of leader. And then he went to go, go to a, a more conservative church where Pastor Richard Phillips was, was leading. A, he's a well-known conservative expositor. And, and, and Phillips began to actually ask some questions about this man's behavior. And the guy got kind of upset and got kind of defensive. He's like, who are you to question what I'm doing? You know, I don't believe in a God that would ever rebuke. I believe in a God of love. And this wise seasoned pastor says, it's God's love that is precisely your problem. God loves your wife. God loves your family. What you are doing is not pleasing in God's sight. God loves his law. God loves the sanctity of marriage. It is God's love that causes him to rebuke us when we are off. See, this is what we're going to discover throughout the book of Revelation. We have to be discerning, Jesus says. We, we, we in our day, cannot yield to the demands of a very relativistic, postmodern culture which rejects truth and tolerates everything. Then he says this in verse 3, You have persevered and endured hardships, for my name, and have not grown weary. So I see a second characteristic showing up here. They're not just discerning. They're they're commended for endurance. They have this quality of endurance. They've endured hardships. The word there means toil or labor. It means you stick with something even when it's difficult or uncomfortable, even when you're tempted to quit. You don't quit. You endure. You work hard. You persevere. You push through even when you don't feel like it. Anybody who's ever had a tough job or tough boss or a difficult class at school, you know you had to graduate, so you endured. It's this quality of character that's a strength of the soul, right? Endurance. Reminds me of the Iron Man, Dave Scott. You guys know Dave Scott? Dave Scott's a world-class athlete. He won the Iron Man triathlon six different times. Six times. In training for this triathlon, every single day, Dave would ride his bike 75 miles. 
After he got off his bike, he would run 17 miles. After he got done with his run, he would hop in the pool and swim 20,000 meters. That was his regimen every day. He would go home, take the cottage cheese out of the refrigerator, and rinse the cottage cheese just because he wanted to have a complete, lean, low-fat diet. Now, I'm just happy if I buy cottage cheese. <laughs> this guy has discipline. This guy has endurance, right? That's how you win an Ironman. There's this parallel in the spiritual world of endurance, though, isn't there? Any church who wants to be healthy, who has a good run, who has spiritual vitality and, and a lasting impact, here's what I know. That church has people who endure. At their core, there's a team of iron men and iron women who say, you know, I'm going to play even when I don't feel like playing. I'm going to serve even when I don't feel like serving. I'm going to lead even when I don't feel like leading. I'm going to endure. It's like the nursery workers I walked by this morning just showing up week after week after week. It's like the parking lot guys who are here at like, I don't know, 5.30 in the morning. It's like the people who serve all over this campus week after week after week and sometimes thankless positions who say, I'm going to push through and endure. I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to make it happen. Why? For the name of Jesus Christ, I'm going to endure. This is the church in Ephesus. These guys left it all on the field. And Christ commends them, right? He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured, endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. You know, oh, Pastor David, what did they endure exactly? What, what is he talking about? What hardships did they go through? Well, for one, Jesus says in verse 2, I, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Newsflash, not everybody who attends church is an angel. Uh, Jesus' church is full of sinners, and guess what? Sometimes they act like it. That's a challenge for leaders, though. That means we have to protect the sheep. And that means we have to guard against wolves, and sometimes we have to have conversations. No, we don't do that here. Uh, at, at a previous church where I served, there was an, an older gentleman there in his upper 50s, middle age, and, and he decided he was going to follow this young single girl in her early 20s out to her car, uh, after church on Sunday, and, and he thinks he's being friendly. She's like, I'm being stalked, Pastor Dave. So guess what I get to do as one of the leaders? Right? I got to sit down and have this awkward conversation with this gentleman and say, listen, man, you know, this, this, is, uh, this, is, a, this is Jesus's church, not a singles bar. We don't do that here. We don't do that here. You say, well, you're chasing the sheep away. No, 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 we're chasing the wolves away. You have to be very careful to protect the flock now, I know we have to have grace and understanding, and there's, there's, there's all that too. But leaders have to have hard conversations. And let me, can I tell you, they're exhausting. They're awkward. They're emotionally draining, but they're important. They're necessary. If you want to have a healthy church, the Ephesians knew that. So they're people of integrity, bearing the hardships, and willing to push through, have hard conversations. And I just imagine Jesus going, I, I saw that hard conversation. Good job. And he's clapping his hands. I'm so proud of you. I know you cannot tolerate wickedness. You reject false teachers. You've held the line. You've set your boundaries. You're protecting your flock, and you're protecting my reputation. Well done. So far, so good. Glowing job review from the Lord Jesus Christ here so far, right? Up until verse 5, long list of things to celebrate. But, but before you give yourself a promotion here, Jesus says, before you pat yourself on the back, there's the one thing that troubles me. There's this one thing that I've noticed. Verse 4, Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
the Apostle John rebukes them. So the love of Christ which constrains and compels us no longer constrains and compels you. See, the church at Ephesus was like 40, 50 years old at this time, a lot of second-generation Christians. And while the first generation was zealous for the truth, at some point that original flame that burned bright and hot flickered and went out. Wait, wait, wait. You mean it's possible, Pastor Dave, to be like committed to the Bible, faithful, serving in the church, full of righteous living, and yet lose your first love? Yes. 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 This is the danger for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time. Maybe you're on your third, second, second, third, fourth generation, your decade following Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, your second generation, third generation. You've gone to church your whole life. You volunteered in ministry. You, you donated your time, your money. You're committed. You serve on committees. You're so committed. That's commitment. You went on mission trips. You've seen it all, done it all. You've endured. You've persevered. You're, you're a seasoned safe. And then Jesus sits across the table from you and from me and says, well done. I just have this one question for you. Where is your heart? See, I had this conversation with the mentor of my life, Peter Pendel, about a decade ago. He said, sometimes, even in ministry, your, your heart can, can grow cold. Sometimes if you're not careful, serving the Lord can, can become more like a I have to rather than I get to. And, and sometimes it feels like my heart just, just, I put it in a meat locker or something for a while and I stop really having that relational connection with the Lord. And I, I got, he said, I got busy with the work of the Lord and I forgot about the Lord of the work. The Ephesians had this problem. They had this heart problem. Somewhere along the way, the warm, tender affection they once had for Jesus, their crucified Savior and risen Lord and coming King, somewhere, somehow, their faith got old and their heart grew cold and turned to ice. Jesus says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Me! Now, let's be honest. This happens to all of us, doesn't it? I'll be transparent. As I was preparing this message for you this morning... This message hit me right in between the eyes, and I'm looking at this thing going, Jesus, are you talking to me? Is this message for me? Do you want, do you want this to go through me first before I can deliver it to them? Is, am I the person in this letter? Has my love grown cold? Am I just going through the motions? Do I work here because I have to, or, or do, I, do I serve here because I get to? Don't get me wrong, I'm a committed Christian. You know, I went to Bible college, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, I, you know, I'm a pastor of a church, I love the Lord, I love the Word, but is it possible, is it possible that sometimes, sometimes, somewhere, we, we, we can even, our, our hearts can grow cold. That, that's what's going on here with the Ephesians. They, you would never know that. that. They went through the motions on the outside. They did the right things, but on the inside, they had this major heart problem. As their faith grew older, their hearts grew colder. Is that you? Is this sermon just for me this morning, or is anybody else feeling like, wow, that, that might, I, this really, I'm not sure. How do I know if, if my heart is growing cold? Well, let me just give you three possible criteria that might help 
with a diagnostic test. If you find yourself growing complacent, you're kind of going through the motions, you're maybe at church or maybe at home reading your Bible or you're, you know, you're serving, but you're doing that not really with your heart in it, you're complacent. Sometimes we see this in worship, right? People are singing, it's just kind of singing the words. But can you remember the first time you sang that song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, and the first time you really understood the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it brought tears to your eyes and you were so passionate about the Lord. Can you remember back then? Can you remember that passion you found, that purpose you found, that love you found? Now you hear that same song and our team is leading you and it just does nothing for you. It's cold, dusty, it's old, dry. Long-time believers. Was there a moment in your past where things were different, though? When the spiritual flame burned hot and bright? But now, if you're honest, it's, it's gone out or it's barely flickering. This is the danger of a faith growing old. The heart can grow cold. Second, you become casual about your relationship with the Lord. Just casual, you know? This, this happens in relationships uh, you know, even with husbands and wives sometimes, doesn't it? You, you know, when you're first dating, it's all passion and romance, and then 10, 20, 30, 40 years go by, the romance cools. And that's the danger. Couples stop doing the little things, stop treating each other with special care, and, and it becomes more casual. We're more like roommates than spouses. Same thing happens vertically in our relationship with Christ. We treat Christ like, like a buddy, let me send you a text if I need a favor. Brothers and sisters, the book of Revelation is going to wake us up to this reality. Yes, Jesus is our friend. He's a very significant friend to have. He's not just your buddy. This is our majestic, glorified, all-powerful Savior and Lord, and he demands our all. Amen. See, if you don't correct this casual attitude, it's going to lead to three. The third step here is, is compromise. With the world, if, if your love for Jesus grows cold, sooner or later you and I are going to find our affections drawn towards something else. We'll start craving the buffet that our world offers us out there. The heart is an idle factory. You can pick whatever it is that you want to focus on and obsess about. Money, power, prestige, fame, home decorating, travel, social media, food, work, even family can become more important than God. Even ministry sometimes can become an idol in, in our hearts. Idolatry is just simply taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing, that which I talk about all the time. I can't talk about anything else. It's just become this, it's too important to you, this thing. It's more important than Jesus. And now I'm compromising because of this thing, because it supersedes my love for Jesus. We forsake our first love. Does that describe anybody you know? Does that describe you? It's convicting, isn't it? In, in, in your small group, maybe, maybe you'll want to discuss this question. On, on page eight, the, the group's guide says this. Has there been a time when you may have forsaken your first love for Christ and his people? What contributed to losing your passion? Do any of these resonate with you? One, I grew bored. I lost interest in following God and serving the church. Two, I was wounded. Someone hurt me. In the past, and I'm leery of it happening again. I ran into religion without love. I ran into legalism there. Cold rules and rituals. People shooting their own wounded. Judgmental, controlling people. Three, I got distracted by something else. My schedule got really full. 
full of good things, but I don't make time for the most important things. Loving God and serving people. If that describes you, don't despair. Drifting happens to believers in their spiritual walk from time to time, especially if you followed Christ for a while. Don't lose hope. There is an answer. Jesus actually has a solution to this problem. It is never too late to turn things around. It's never too late to get it back. Here's the million-dollar question, though, right? How? How do I get it back? Thankfully, in Revelation chapter 2, there's a, there's a corrective that's given in verse 5. Take a look. It says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Hmm. I want you to look at this verse really carefully, and I want you to notice three things in this verse. I want you to notice a threefold strategy, starting with the first item, which is simply remember. Can we say that together? Remember. Such a powerful and biblical word, isn't it? We, the people of God, are so prone to forget. You go back and you read Acts chapter 19 when the church of Ephesus was first founded. You see the amazing work of God there. You see healings occurring. You see people getting saved. You see people bringing out all their pagan items and then lighting them on fire. And they are on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning. But they have forgotten. They have forgotten who God is and all he has done. See, Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Lord tells his people in 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Don't forget that. Just like them, we were slaves, slaves to sin, and the Lord brought us out of our slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But just like them, we can forget, can't we? So John says, I want you to remember. We need to remember this this God who saved us. But remembering is not enough. He, He takes it a step further, doesn't he? Point number two is this. We must also repent. Can we say that together? Repent. The word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind. 180 degree turn. Make a U-turn. Clean house. Get honest. Get right with God again. Repentance is in essence saying, I am sorry, God, for the wrong that I have done. That's it. Not I'm sorry that I got caught. Not I'm sorry for the consequences. Not I'm sorry, but. It's I'm sorry. I was wrong. Period. Full stop. That's repentance. Is it possible if you're here today, you describe yourself as a Christian, is it possible that before God and before Christ, you need to acknowledge your own need of repentance this morning? Is it possible you've presumed and assumed things were right between you and God, but you haven't actually repented of certain sins that he's convicting you of right now? Let me encourage you based on the authority of this scripture to commit to deal with that today. Lastly, remember, repent, and then third, return. Return to the things you did at first. Can we say that word? Return. Go back to the basics. Return to the things you did when you first had faith in Christ. Let me talk to the married for a moment. You remember when you were first, let me just talk to the the men, the husbands. Remember when you were first trying to win your wife over? I remember in the beginning. I was buying Julie flowers. I was writing her all these long letters. I was even trying to write bad poetry. It was embarrassing. I would 
spend lots of time on phones, you know, landlines back then, long distance calling, remember all that stuff, and, and a drive for hours and hours, even though we only get to see each other for a little bit of time, trying to win her. I was wooing her, and it wasn't out of duty, it was a delight, right? I was, I was wooing her, but here's the thing, I won her. We're done, right? Mission accomplished. No, see, after a couple of decades of marriage, if I start going through the motions, neglecting the little things I did for her at first, that's the day our marriage begins to grow cold. Now, apply that to the vertical realm, because the same thing is true. That's the danger of being in any long-term relationship. When love grows older, the heart can grow colder. Same thing can happen with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, you have to repent and return and do the things you did at first. Which means you have to kind of take this, this block of ice over here and, and, and see, if you, see if you can find, you know, maybe like a, an, an ice chipper. And see if you can like chip away at this block of ice that's around your heart a little bit. Now, how do you do that? Well, let me just give you three practical ways. First, start with your morning devotional. Start with your morning devotional. I challenge you to go to the Lord. The first thing after you open up your eyes, go to the Word of God and start chipping away at this ice around your heart. Give God your first 15 minutes. Say, God, I want to meet with you. I want, I want your Word to speak with me. I just want to, I, I want to, I want to get rid of all this ice around my heart because I want, I, want I want to hear from you. Give God that time in the morning so that he can speak to you each and every day. Second, devote some time in personal worship. You know, don't just sing songs with our worship team, you know, three songs a week. No, you got to have songs like every single day. You got you to sing in the shower. You got to get your worship going at, 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 on, in the car. You got to chip away at this heart. You got you to open up your heart to the Lord and chip away at this thing because ice is going to form around there. You got to worship every single day of the week. You can't just eat once a week. You got to eat every single day right? Third, fasting. There is a special spiritual discipline, if you're medically able, that God has given us to increase our hunger for him. And maybe it's not food for you. Maybe it is food for you, but maybe it's just one meal. Or, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's fasting from social media or fasting from texting or fasting from TV or, or regular food fasting where you're going, I'm, I'm just going to devote this time to you. God, I'm, I'm going to give you my heart. I'm just going to keep on chipping away at this heart because I, I, I got I to get close to you because I want you more than I even want food. You got to get back to the things that you did at first. You see, I want you to notice what John says here. He says, he doesn't say, I want you to feel the things you felt at first. He says, I want you to do the things you did at first, right? Emotion follows action. Go ahead and just do the things that you did at first, and your emotions will follow after that. That's how you recover your first love. It's a threefold strategy, right? Remember, repent, and return. What I want you to see here, though, is this is not new. This is not just a practical necessity. This is a biblical strategy. It's old. He said this back to the church at Ephesus in the first century, and, and the Lord Jesus says, come back to me. Let me take that heart that's all icy, and let me melt it with my love. It's not too late. Remember, repent, and return to me, your first love. I urge you to do that 
here at the beginning of this series because the stakes couldn't be any higher. Take a look at this warning he gives next. He says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Translation, if you guys don't put your heart into this, it's lights out. I'll shut your church down. You'll no longer be a witness for me in that community. Well, this is a word of warning from the CEO of the church. As the original founder, owner, and operator of the church, Christ alone has the authority to turn off the lights and remove the lampstand. No local church is automatically permanent. If God's love leads the building, the spirit of Christ leaves too. So this is a warning to us. You can go visit Ephesus today, and you're going to find ruins there. There is no lasting Christian witness in Ephesus today. It's gone. That's why he says in verse 7, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then he gives this reward. And he closes with this. He says, to the one who is victorious... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Tree of life, where have I heard that before? Here we are in the very last book of the Bible, and he's hearkening all the way back to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, where there was this tree of life in God's paradise, Eden. Sadly, our parents, Adam and Eve, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as a result, evil and sin entered and wrecked our world. But here, the Lord Jesus promises us, and I think this is what our hearts and our souls really long for, that if we're really hungry for him and we turn back to him, he will allow us to eat of this tree of life. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden in the place of fellowship with God. That is our future to those of us who are victorious. This is a lavish reward from the Lord. You know, after I got that visit from the founder of CC's Pizza, I got another visit later that day, a couple hours later, from the particular owner of, of my franchise location. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. I'm going I'm to find out how that little mystery shop went right away. This is, and I, I got to tell you, I was not expecting this to go well. He took me out, out back. We were standing out there by the dumpsters and stuff. And I was quite surprised when he looked me in the eye and he said, Dave, I want to thank you for your leadership here today. Uh, the owner of our company stopped by and he gave a glowing report of CC's number 35, Cherry Lane. Because of your leadership and management here, he just approved me for my seventh franchise location. I want to thank you. You're going places, Dave. Stay tuned for your reward. Now, I'm not too sure I deserve that. But what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here is so much better than a new franchise location. What Jesus is saying here is that if we overcome, if we are victorious, there is a reward beyond any other reward you can ever imagine. It is to eat from the very tree of life in God's presence himself. Amazing. How do we get there? Three words. Remember, repent, and return to the things you did at first. Can we say those three words? Remember, repent, and return. Now say it like you mean it. Remember, repent, and return. Can we pray? Worship team, would you come? And as we pray and bow our heads and close our eyes this morning, 
Can we just take a moment and do some business with the Lord? As we begin this new series, as we begin on the first week, would you just take a moment and examine your own heart this morning? How's your heart today, really? Honestly? Is it deeply connected to Christ, warm and beating? Or has it grown cold and complacent? If so, I want to pray with you. Let's just take a moment, make this very personal. Each one of us doing business with God ourselves. Let's just keep our heads bowed and be praying. Let's just have an honest talk with our Savior and come clean with Him this morning. Just quiet your hearts now. Just quiet your hearts. What is Jesus saying to you right now? What is the Spirit saying to your heart? Have you grown cold? Complacent? Confess that. Tell Christ. He wants you to come home to Him. Lord, show me the ways I've grown cold to you. Help me to turn away from these idols and return to Jesus, my first love. Jesus, forgive me for growing cold. Replace my heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Thank you for loving me, for dying for my sins and giving me life. I want to love you, serve you, be faithful to you. So fill my heart afresh with your spirit today. I pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Can we stand and respond in worship to our Lord this morning?